Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Kjetil Abelsnes. Uh, I work for Norwegian Church Aid. I'm going to sort of moderate this morning's session. Uh, first, I have to say that uh, this uh, seminar is being recorded for a podcast, so that you just know that this is going on. So don't say anything crazy. <laughs> um, we're going to jump straight in uh, with Raymond Baker, um, who's going to talk about shadow finance and democratic capitalism at risk. Uh, it's a great honor on behalf of Fellesrådet for Afrika, Kirkens Nødhjelp, uh, Tax Justice Network Norway, Publish What You Pay, and Transparency International Norway to welcome Mr. Baker. He has a very long career of working on the issues that we are interested in. in the, from the 60s to the 80s, he was an entrepreneur and investor in Nigeria. Uh, from then on, he has provided developing country governments with advice on issues such as anti-corruption, debt and trade. In 2005, he published the book, Capitalism's Achilles Heel, Dirty Money and How to Renew the Free Market System, which in many ways was one of the things that set off this push uh, towards uh, financial transparency. He is currently the president of Global Financial Integrity, uh, Mr. Baker also served on the high-level panel for illicit financial flows for Africa, led by Tabo Mbeki. So I think this is going to be very interesting. Mr. Baker, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be with you uh, uh, today. been looking forward uh, to this opportunity. And I want to thank Norway for being a leader in uh, this entire framework of domestic resource mobilization, curtailing illicit financial flows, meeting the sustainable development goals. Norway is perhaps the single most important country uh, in this agenda, and we, uh, we appreciate it. Let me begin with um, a couple of stories from my, uh, my own experiences. Um, I got off the airplane in Lagos, Nigeria in 1961 to uh, uh, take on the management of a, uh, a company. And one of the early individuals that I spoke to was a, um, a gentleman who was managing director of John Holt Trading Company. John Holt had been active up and down the west coast of Africa since the... Uh, uh, the late 1800s. And I asked this gentleman, how do you do business in Africa? And he looked me upside, one side and down the other, and he was not the least bit forthcoming. I got the distinct impression that he didn't like Americans showing up in his ex-British colony so soon after independence. But I, but I pressed on, as is my American manner, and I, um, I asked him, okay, well, tell me, how do you price your imported cars and building materials and textiles to sell in the Nigerian market? And he looked at me again, and he said, price? Price is not a problem. I'm not trying to make a profit. 
I had just finished two years at Harvard Business School studying all about how to make a profit. And here, one of the first people that I talked to in Africa says, I'm not trying to make a profit. I had no idea what was going on here. It took me a while to realize that basically he was talking about transfer pricing, uh, pricing everything that was imported at such a high level that profits were automatically shifted out within the invoice of what was being uh, imported. Okay, I worked for that company for a little under two years and then set up on my own and started buying small and medium-sized companies that I could afford to buy. It made my biggest acquisitions in the midst of the Nigerian Civil War, recognizing that I was playing a zero-sum game here. <laughs> I was either going to uh, make it or I was going to lose everything. Uh, toward the end of the Civil War, I had my eye on a particular manufacturing company that I wanted to, uh, to buy. Uh, this is a company that had been losing money every year for five years that it had been in business. Um, um, I offered uh, to buy the company uh, at a price which was ten times the book value of the company. A couple of years later, Harvard Business School wrote a uh, case study of this acquisition opportunity and presented to the students the balance sheet and the income statement and the history of Nigeria and the Civil War and prospects for uh, the economy and so forth. And unbeknownst to the students, I was sitting in the back of the room listening to them debate whether or not uh, uh, this company should be acquired. And after an hour's discussion or so, the professor called for a vote, and the students unanimously voted not to buy this company. This was a dog, a turkey, this was dead, buried, anybody that would even think about buying this company. It obviously been in the tropical sun too long. So. I uh, was then invited uh, to the front of the class and uh, told the students, not only did we buy it, but we paid off all of its debts in the first year and generous dividends to me and minority shareholders for years thereafter. How did we do it? Were we absolute management geniuses? No. All we did was buy imported raw materials at world market prices. The other family that owned the business had been overpricing imports for the purpose of shifting money out of the country. We didn't do that. We bought at world market prices. We um, made our profits in Nigeria, paid our taxes, raised the salaries of our uh, workers, borrowed more money, tripled the capacity of the business, and uh, prospered. It was just a matter of running it right. Uh, that's, that, that's all it took. Okay, let me take these um, experiences from a half a century ago and ask you to join me at 50,000 feet looking down at the world. What do we see? I'm going to cover uh, a range of issues um, before bringing it back down to Earth again. So join me for a few minutes at uh, 50,000 feet. The capitalist system has undergone over the last half century a largely unrecognized but utterly fundamental change. Uh, prior to this, that is from the late 18th century to the mid 20th century, capitalists were almost exclusively focused on earning profits. Since then, since from about the 1960s onwards, 
capitalists have become equally or almost equally uh, focused on uh, hiding profits. The democratic capitalist system as a whole is affected by this new motivation within its capitalist uh, uh, component. These two tenets, democracy and capitalism, which should be operating in sync to spread prosperity and freedom, are instead becoming decoupled, no longer operating in sync. To facilitate this new goal within capitalism, this goal of uh, secrecy, a shadow financial system has been created and expanded, uh, moving and sheltering trillions of dollars of unknown providence belonging to unknown owners. Corporations, banks, individuals make use of this system to secrete money of, of suspect um, uh, origin. Exactly the same system is used by drug dealers and other kinds of criminals and corrupt government officials and terrorist financiers um, and more. The original tenets of democracy, popular vote, rule of law, representative legislatures, uh, protection of minority rights, these original tenets of democracy have not fundamentally changed that they were formulated in the late 1700s. The original tenets of capitalism have been radically altered. Um, um, earning profits, uh, spreading wealth, uh, operating ethically, if you subscribe to Adam Smith's first book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, these original tenets of capitalism have been uh, very substantially uh, uh, altered. The, um, uh, the consequence of the addition of this second motive uh, within capitalism is contributing to income and wealth inequality, to transnational organized crime, uh, to political instability, and it's undermining freedom and democracy itself. Balance within the democratic capitalist system depends on some semblance of an ethical, social, and equitable social contract that, that uh, uh, navigates the space between fair economic opportunities and equal political rights. The ambition with inherent in, within capitalism and the justice expected through democracy are now severely out of balance. And the democratic capitalist system is affected by this reality. Let me be clear where I'm coming from. I spent a total of 35 years in business, and indeed still have business uh, interests, um, uh, all over the world. So I'm all for the free market system. I believe in free trade, free currency convertibility, and free movement of capital. I do add a proviso to that, provided it is legal and accountable. Now, to this rather sweeping thesis of uh, conflict between democracy and capitalism, let me flesh this out uh, with four points. First, I want to talk about the elements of the shadow financial system that are undermining capitalism. Second, um, the level of inequality that is resulting in part from this reality. 
Third, the relationship of the shadow financial system to transnational organized crime. And fourth, the impact of these realities on freedom uh, and democracy. Okay, first, of all, first point from 50,000 feet, the shadow financial system. The most important point to grasp about the shadow financial system is that every element of it has been developed by us, us in the wealthier countries, Europe and uh, the United States. This is entirely our own creation. This is not something done to us by drug dealers and other kinds of criminals and corrupt government officials and so forth. No, this is something done by us for the purpose of advancing this new motivation uh, within uh, capitalism, shifting and hiding of income and wealth. The elements of the shadow financial system need to be understood to get a grasp on, on um, uh, this point. First of all, tax havens. When I started in business in the early 1960s, there were, unbeknownst to me at the time, only some three or four tax havens around the world. Today, there are, oh, 80 to 150, depending on which list uh, uh, you, uh, you read. Um, secrecy jurisdictions. This is the structure of lawyers and bankers and accountants in the, in the tax havens that facilitate the, um, um, the management of uh, the secret flow of funds. Disguised corporations, corporations where no one knows who are the real owners of the business. More of them in my country, the United States, than in any other country. Because in the United States, corporations are formed at the state level. And all 50 states of the United States now make it possible for entities to be formed by company formation agents, and they do not have to identify uh, who are the real owners of the business. So we've got uh, more disguised corporations in the US uh, than any other country. Anonymous trust accounts. You can do the same thing with an anonymous trust account that you can do with a uh, disguised corporation. Fake foundations. You can create a charitable foundation, you can donate your money to this charitable foundation, and you can designate yourself the beneficiary of the charity of your foundation, uh, escaping taxes at uh, uh, every step along the way. Trade misinvoicing, what was being done by John Holt, uh, bringing goods in, and what was being done by the family that I bought the business from, trade misinvoicing is the principal operating mechanism within the shadow financial system. It's the most frequently used way that you shift money around the world. Um, then there are an awful lot of money laundering techniques to handle particular uh, aspects of, uh, uh, of money that you want to uh, move around the world. Several years ago, I uh, went to Lyon, France, where Interpol is headquartered, and I met with a senior official outside the headquarters, um, and this individual spent two and a half hours telling me stories of drug dealers and corrupt government officials and so forth. They were moving and shifting their money uh, around the world. 
and it was a monologue on his part. When he got through, he sort of self-confidently leaned back in his chair and rather dismissively asked me if I had anything to add. I said to him, anything to add? You haven't cited a single example of moving corrupt and criminal money that I haven't seen years ago in the business of moving commercial dirty money. The man bolted forward in his chair, learning for the first time that everything he'd worked on in crime and corruption uh, had its antecedents in the normal routines of moving uh, commercial money. And finally, there are holes left in the laws of our Western countries that facilitate the movement of money through the shadow financial system and ultimately into our economies. A lot of people think that the United States, for example, has strong anti-money laundering provisions. That if, you, if a bank takes in money that it has any reason to suspect then it is um, required to file what is called a suspicious activities report. Can you imagine how many uh, suspicious activities reports are filed in the United States? An average of 55,000 a day. What this means is that the U.S. financial institution will take in just about every dime that it can possibly take in so long as it files a SAR uh, to cover uh, its tracks. Accelerating from the 1960s onward, this is the shadow financial system that we have created. Let me repeat, this is not the work of drug dealers and other kinds of criminals and uh, corrupt government officials. No, this is entirely our own uh, uh, creation. We created this system to shift and hide revenues and profits in and out of corporations and banks and accounts and across borders um, in a hidden manner. We created this system to serve this new motivation within capitalism, the shifting and hiding of hidden money. Okay, second point from 50,000 feet. Capitalism is driving inequality. Now, a lot of people blame rising inequality on globalization or technology or financial deregulation or what have you. Um, and all of these have some element of, of uh, contribution to uh, inequality, but all of them are also dependent upon the shadow financial system, uh, which is dedicated to moving and hiding wealth. More countries are having rising income inequality than falling income inequality. In these four studies, the red represents the countries that have rising income inequalities, the blue countries with falling income inequalities. In all four studies, more countries are showing rising inequality than falling uh, inequality. Look at the share of global wealth of the top 1% compared to the remaining 99%. These two paths crossed last year in 2017 with the 1% richest of the world now having more wealth than the remaining 99% uh, of the world. This is something that simply um, cannot be sustained. Take another look at it. Um, 
let's divide the world into 10% population groups, deciles. Look at how much of global wealth belongs to the top 10% and how little of global wealth is available to the remaining 90%. We're talking about 87% of global wealth accruing to the top 10% and only 13% of global wealth available to the bottom 90%. This cannot be regarded as the finest accomplishment of capitalist ideology. This represents a failing within the system, not the success of the system. For years, we in the Western countries um, have regarded ourselves, it's true of Norway, it's not true of a lot of other countries. Uh, I should say it's not true of Norway, it is true of a lot of other countries. A lot of other countries have regarded themselves um, as extremely generous to the poor, with foreign aid and foreign direct investment and um, uh, military assistance and so forth. In global financial integrity, our analysis indicates that more money is flowing from poor countries to rich countries than is flowing from rich countries to poor countries. In other words, it is not the rich who are supporting the poor, it is in fact the poor who are supporting the rich. This is exactly what the shadow financial system is designed to do, and it does it very effectively and very efficiently. Okay, third point from 50,000 feet. Transnational organized crime uses every element of the shadow financial system to move and shelter criminally generated money. In the 1970s, drug dealers looked at the development of the shadow financial system in the 1960s and realized that this system was ideally suited for them and they stepped into the use of the shadow financial system. In the 1980s, other kinds of uh, criminal organizations, seeing how easy it was for the drug dealers to do it, they too stepped into the shadow financial system to move their money. In the 1990s and in the first decade of this century, terrorist financiers, seeing how easy it was for all kinds of criminals and drug dealers to do it, they too stepped into these same um, uh, opportunities to move uh, their uh, illicit money. Every aspect of crime, money laundering, and tax evasion is growing faster than the global economy is growing. It's all growing faster than the normal rate of growth in the global uh, economy. We analyze um, um, the retail value of transnational crime. Our estimate in 11 categories of crime is some $2 trillion uh, a year. Not included in this uh, listing of uh, types of crimes are things for which we don't have good data. Uh, we don't have anything approximating good data. Uh, for example, credit fraud and cybercrime and so forth. We have no idea how big these are. If we were add those, these numbers uh, um, uh, would be uh, bigger. But um, uh, I stress again, every criminal organization that's dealing across borders is using the shadow financial system to move its resources. 
Fourth point from 50,000 feet, the impact of these realities on democracy and freedom. The secrecy motivation within capitalism uh, is contributing to rising income and wealth inequality. It's contributing to an explosion in transnational organized crime, and it's also having an impact on democracy and freedom. In the United States, Freedom House, based in Washington, D.C., measures global freedom um, um, across uh, countries and has found for the past 12 years that more countries are losing freedoms than gaining freedoms. The red lines indicate the loss, uh, countries that are experiencing a loss of freedom and the blue lines, countries that are experiencing rising freedoms. More countries are losing freedoms uh, than increasing freedoms. Shared economic prosperity, if it was a reality, could blunt uh, some of the impact of this. But shared economic uh, uh, opportunity is not possible in a system that is so dedicated to the moving and hiding of illicit money. Look at the correlation of illicit financial flows and the fall of freedom um, in uh, top countries. Look at the uh, correlation of illicit financial flows and the decline in civil liberties as measured uh, by Freedom House. Look at the decline um, in the rule of law correlated to illicit financial flows as measured by Freedom House. Look also at the decline in measures of voice and accountability correlated with illicit financial flows. We are talking about a reality that is impacting virtually every element we can measure in uh, democracy uh, and freedom. Okay, with this brief overview for, of the shadow financial system from 50,000 feet. Let's take this down to, to ground level and uh, let me comment about the uh, uh, global economy for a moment. The key fallacy in global economic and financial affairs is the idea that we in the richer countries can continue to hold on to our use of the shadow financial system and at the same time make the criminal and the corrupt and the kleptocrat give up their use of the shadow financial system. This is not possible. As long as we use it for moving our money, they will use it uh, for moving uh, their money. Um, we are dealing with a systemic problem. Okay, let me turn to solutions. Is there a systemic approach um, uh, to this issue? Yes. Dismantle the shadow financial system. We built it. We can take it down. It's not rocket science. It's a matter of political will. Let me illustrate this with just um, one example, which hopefully will clarify um, how straightforward this is to do if we have the political will uh, to uh, accomplish that. Years ago, I used to include shell banks 
um, in uh, the um, elaboration of the elements of the shadow financial system. I don't include shell banks uh, anymore. After 9-11 in the United States, um, the U.S. adopted uh, what's called the USA Patriot Act, um, which has in it a strengthened anti-money laundering provision. And within that provision, it says, no U.S. financial institution can receive money from a shell bank. It goes on to say, no financial institution in the world can send money to the United States that it has received from a shell bank. It makes it very clear that this includes wire transfers that might touch a correspondent banking account uh, in New York for a moment before flitting off somewhere else. With this very clear-cut prohibition, shell banks went from thousands to a handful just like that, shut down around the world. There are a handful still operating in Europe and Asia being extremely careful to make sure that their wire transfers never go through a correspondent account in New York. But I don't include shell banks uh, anymore in this list. They're basically off the table. The same thing can be done with disguised corporations, anonymous trust accounts, fake foundations, uh, even trade misinvoicing. All of this is subject to political will. I repeat, we built it. We can take it down if we have the will uh, to do so. Let me conclude by putting back up on the screen one figure, the share of global wealth by deciles. A principal driver of this reality is the shadow financial system. The system is designed to move money from the bottom to the top, from poor to rich, from criminal to legitimate, from corrupt to respectable. That's what it's designed to do, and that's what it does very effectively day in and day out. This severe imbalance in global economic affairs is, I think, um, the greatest problem in the democratic capitalist uh, system. It is a systemic problem. It's a problem on a par with climate change. This is the reality in the world today of 7.5 billion people. Imagine this reality at the end of this century in a world estimated to have a population of 11 billion people, 4 billion of them in Africa. This, ladies and gentlemen, is an unstable world. This is the world that we have to change. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. We're going to continue with, with a little debate. We built it. We can dismantle it. I think that's the challenge for our two politicians here this morning. Um, we're going to hear from, from Jens Fölich Holte, uh, Deputy Minister of Development uh, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and Moyana Martinsen from the uh, from Labour Party, Member of Parliament, um, what is it, uh, 
Utenriks- og forsvarskomiteen. Standing Committee of Foreign Affairs and Defense. Ok. And development. <laughs> well, <laughs> wonderful. So, if you can just uh, take a seat and then you can choose if you want to sort of stand while talking or sit. Um, we will also get Raymond up because we want you to be part of our discussion, <laughs> if, you, if you like. <laughs> How can we dismantle it? Oh yeah, that's the big, <laughs> the big question, you know. Um, we created it, as, as, as Raymond said, quite, uh, quite correctly. Although the, the, the issue here is that the we here, is, it's a big we. Um, Norway alone, um, I mean, hopefully we, could, we, we do work to influence other countries. But there are some big players out there that are skeptical to change, skeptical towards transparency. Um, I mean, domestically in Norway we have um, great transparency when it comes to, to companies, for instance. You can, uh, you can see who owns the different companies quite, quite clearly. That's not the case globally. There are uh, countries close to Norway that are uh, much, much less uh, forward-leaning when it comes to um, curbing uh, illicit financial flows and, 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 and you know, uh, taking a stand globally. But we, but we need international cooperation. That's, that's, the, that's our entry into this, uh, into this question. Uh, we've been doing several things. We, we try to, to work and coordinate um, international work on, on um, tax evasion uh, and, and uh, profit shifting and, uh, and tax-based erosion. But then also, crucially, and, and what I work uh, mostly with is our uh, program called Tax for Development, which is a great Norwegian export. We can export oil and fish, but we also can export great tax systems. Um, so we've, um, we have a pledge to double our uh, tax-related aid uh, uh, to 2020, and we are very well in, in progress of achieving, uh, achieving that goal. And I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a way of building capacity uh, for designing good tax systems that will um, address, I mean, the, the, one of the sources of, these, of the uh, shadow financial system is that you, the capacity in a lot of countries is not good enough to handle. Um, handle illicit financial flows and all the questions related to this. But there's also a, a part of, of big politics here that's sometimes, it, it's a bit tough to dismantle uh, quickly, but, uh, you know, international cooperation, is, it's a good thing. And, you know, um, banking, and I, I say this in a lot of uh, meetings like this, that banking and, and uh, banking and the financial system, it's really a very beautiful thing if it's done correctly, because it, it helps um, transmit uh, or transform dead and underutilized capital into something that's socially productive. That's when the banking system is working. And there are very, very many good signs that the system has not been working, not in favor of the poor, as we can see here on the slide that was just uh, behind us, uh, and, uh, and, not only, and not also not for the systemic stability as we saw in the financial crisis. But, um, but uh, so having a healthy financial system, it's a it's, uh, um, it would be uh, it's a prerequisite for uh, economic growth and inclusive economic growth, uh, but there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, wrongs that needs to be corrected if we're going to get there. And our tax for development program is one uh, very sp specific um, and I think also useful um, channel for putting this um, problem more on the agenda. But in addition to building the capacity. Uh, the international cooperation here is uh, it's, uh, going to be necessary. We also work, work uh, in the UN um, 
uh, working potentially towards some kind of convention uh, on um, combating illicit financial flows, but, but it's, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of resistance out there, to be honest. A lot of resistance? Yes. Well, no, no wonder. Um, <laughs> Marianne uh, Martinsen. Uh. Well, well, of course, there's a lot of resistance. Um, and that's why we, ca we can't afford to be backward leaning uh, like, like the current government, to be, to be honest. That's, um, I'm, uh, I'm kind of, of tired of hearing, uh, uh, of hearing people representing the government parties um, underlining how Norway can't do anything alone, that we need to do everything within international cooperation. And of course we need international cooperation, but Norway as a single country can do more to put pressure. Um, and, and what we re really need to understand here is that we are actually not discussing some small, obscure Pacific islands, uh, like, uh, like most people actually ten tend to think. For a, for a very large part, this is the system. Uh, and, and the importance of, of uh, jurisdictions like Panama is actually declining right now. So political pressure, exchange of information, tighter regulation, works. That's the optimistic side of this story. Uh, but, uh, but other favorable jurisdictions um, that, that, uh, that they seen uh, as more proper by, by business is now uh, seizing the moment. And I read this, uh, this very interesting article in Bloomberg uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and this article was showing in numbers how offshore clients now are shuffling their assets out of jurisdictions like Panama and into uh, to jurisdictions like, uh, or countries like US, UK, Singapore, Hong Kong. So not only do we need to make uh, financial integrity and capacity building uh, a main focus in our development policy, but we must also be willing to put some serious pressure on countries that we usually see as allies. And to be honest, we are not doing that right now. Um, another aspect that really worries me at a very deep level right now is the development in tech. And you, you touched upon it, Mr. Baker. Uh, we have been discussing you know, the dig digital giants like Facebook, Amazon, Google for quite some years now. Uh, and uh, these corporate structures that only exist up in the clouds challenge uh, some of the fundamental concepts of tax systems. Uh, but now, with introduction of blockchain crypt and cryptocurrencies, um, this makes it possible for nearly everyone to operate out of reach from tax authorities, out of reach from our legal systems, criminal investigation. And how can civil society uh, uh, hold companies, hold politicians responsible in such a reality? How can we combat increasing inequality, for instance, and the consolidation of power? if it's becoming even more invisible. And it's, uh, it's my sincere hope that I, that I one day will have grandchildren reading about this, this age that we are living in right now uh, in, in books and asking, what the hell were they up to? What were, what were they doing having this uh, totally unregulated shadow economy developing at such, such a speed on the, on the internet? Um, and then the whole point of having politicians is to draw some political conclusions from, from this. Uh, and what we obviously need is more openness. That's a no-brainer. 
Um, and Norway isn't performing too well at home, to, to be honest. Um, we, we need extended country-by-country -country reporting. Uh, we, uh, we need to fight the uh, anonymous trust accounts. Uh, we need to identify beneficial owners. And we need to, to dense the loopholes in our uh, tax legislation or corporate legislation uh, in accounting rules. And that's a rather complicated uh, task. But we also need to build capacity and the ability to make use of all this information that we want to get together. Uh, and tax for development is great. It's, it's a nice thing that you're finally shuffling some money into that, uh, to that program. Uh, but we need to, to, to think broader. We need to think in a bigger picture. Uh, digitalization might be a threat, like I already mentioned, but it also creates tremendous opportunities to, to secure transparency. All transactions leave digital, digital trades if we can only access them. Uh, and if we, if we manage to, to access them, artificial intelligence might actually be what saves us. Just imagine having self-learning algorithms uh, who are able to recognize the transaction patterns of people who are trying to hide their money, no matter how complicated they, they, uh, structures they operate through, or uh, reveal the actual value creation, creation that is going on. Uh, such that, that the, the huge problem of transfer pricing that Mr. Baker is, is uh, referring to actually can be solved, no matter how complicated the corporate structures are. These capacities need to be uh, developed, and the, the brilliance is that if they exist, it's easy to, to make them available also to developing countries. So, so I'm thinking that uh, that if Norway really wants to make a difference, if we really want to take on a big task here, we should put resor resources into developing these kinds of capacities. Uh, that, is, uh, that is a major footprint that, that Norway actually can, uh, can uh, contribute to. And then we should talk about the facilitators and the role of the facilitators. They are facing no risk. We have to go after them, but we can come back to that in the discussion because I think I've been talking for quite some minutes now. Thank you. Um, you want to respond to yeah, that? I yeah, mean, it's, it's often uh, in these situations we often end up uh, targeting uh, the uh, development. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's ministry fine. for finance ministry issues. Yeah, 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 and that's uh, that's how it that's how it goes. <laughs> but but I think I, I disagree. I disagree with Marianne, and uh, we are actually we are actually we are um, pointing fingers uh, to countries close to us. Uh, we've been now for the last months or, or even weeks we've had discussions in the UN on, on the resolutions against illicit financial flows. Uh, and um, since we are on a podcast, I'm not going to call out very specifically what's going on there. But the, uh, I mean, we are taking a position that is not making us extremely popular with our, some of our very close uh, neighbors uh, on this continent. Uh, because there is a difference between uh, some European countries and Norway. And, and it's, you know, it's, um, it's a fight that we are taking right now. Uh, so we are doing much more than tax for development. We're also doing some, um, uh, some of the more normative stuff on the global stage um, as well. Uh, and that's, I think it's important to know, so you can be assured. Uh, yeah, <laughs> come on. Of course, it's, ni it's nice <laughs> to hear that you're taking some stand in the UN. 
Uh, but <laughs> but what we're talking about here mm. is, for instance, that we have tax treaties with countries like Luxembourg, countries like the Netherlands, allowing the funneling of big money through these countries to end up in, in secrecy jurisdictions. And we are not pinpointing that issue. And I, I believe that if you're going to actually combat this, we need to take a greater stand on, on, uh, on those kinds of, of issues, even when it, uh, when it uh, means becoming up unpopular with, with countries that we, that we have major trade with and that we are close to during the EEA, the EEA uh, uh, agreement, for instance. Mm -hmm. So w does that mean that you would you sort of in, in the next state visit or something to Switzerland you will kind of take this issue up in the same way that Norway addresses human rights? Yeah, but that that would be for um, uh, it's not. I mean, a development state secretary very no. rarely travels to Luxembourg to put it mildly. <laughs> no, they but are part of the government. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, but you know, but but um, but you know, dialogue on on on, on tax uh, tax issues. Okay, it belongs to the finance ministry. Uh, we are uh, we are one government uh, pulling in the same direction. Um, so um, we are doing our part in the multilateral settings, where the UN is important, not only the UN, OECD as well. Um, but one one more point that I would like to make as well is um, the uh, the combat against illicit financial flows. It's also uh, a part of the SDGs. And the good thing with the SDGs is that all countries and governments have signed up to them. So they're an, they're an excellent, uh, excellent talking point mm. when you meet uh, other politicians globally. So that's, uh, I mean, to, to ask them how they will fulfill SDG 16.4, uh, I believe, uh, financial flows uh, will be. But I think one of the things that we saw from, from Raymond's slides is, is that there is a sense of urgency. Uh, in 2008 was when Obama and the G20 said, oh, well, we're going to cr crack down on this. And, you know, the breaking point here seems to be 2011, 2012. So it seems to be accelerating. Mm. Uh, and I guess I wonder how can we change this? I mean, you talk about the UN and the OECD. Uh, how can we change this power dynamic to make sure that the that the that we get more of our allies in from from southern countries, for instance, uh, how can we, yeah, get momentum in this in the right direction? Yeah, I, 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 I can start. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a huge question, yeah. and it's a, a very complicated uh, question. Uh, I, uh, I'm starting to think that, that this debate that we're having on, uh, on secrecy jurisdictions and illegal financial flows uh, are at a point now uh, that can be um, uh, that, that is quite similar to the place where we, where we uh, were uh, discussing climate change 10 years ago. Um, most countries are, are uh, leaning back, uh, claiming that we need this huge global uh, solution, this global agreement before anyone can start moving. Uh, but, but when we look at, uh, at, uh, at how the, the, climate, uh, the climate issue is being tackled right now, it's actually the initiatives, initiatives coming from single countries, from regions that are, uh, that are uh, contributing to actually uh, get something done. Mm. Uh, like, like the system for quotas in Europe. We, we didn't wait for a global system to put a price on carbon, even though that would be been the optimal solution, but we started to do something at the regional level. 
so I, I believe in leading by example. Mm. Uh, I believe in uh, uh, taking on tasks in Norway, uh, like, uh, like uh, dancing loopholes in our, in our tax system, even though it might uh, lead to, to reactions among investors, which is an argument that we very often hear when, uh, when we are uh, discussing uh, topics, topics like this. Um, uh, even though I believe that financial openness actually might be uh, an um, and, uh, advantage when trying to, to attract uh, investors. Uh, so leading by example is, is one strategy uh, that, uh, that we could follow. And, uh, 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 and then, of course, it's all about uh, the stance that Norway uh, take in, in global institutions like the UN uh, and in, uh, in other, uh, other international institutions like, like the OECD. Uh, for instance, now when OECD has published a new blacklist on secrecy jurisdiction that is basically empty, it's only Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago left on that list, it says something about the criteria that we allow the OECD to operate with. Yeah, and it also says something that this is our system. We made it. Yep. And it's kind of embedded in our societies, in a way. Uh, so how do we kind of unravel that? Uh, I don't have an answer. It's not my, my role. <laughs> well, um, uh, I totally agree on leading by example. And also that the debate here is um, it's a bit less mature than when with climate or environment or, um, or the more green stuff, because you have... Um, you also have very mindful consumers and, and users of the of the um, uh, of the goods uh, market, and people are asking for um, uh, green funds or green products. Um, people are not asking for uh, uh, illicit financial flow-free products uh, yet. So that's. Uh, it would have been impossible. <laughs> it would, yeah, it, yeah, but you know, but it could, you could have, you could have tried, tried to make it a competitive advantage, perhaps. Uh, but it's, but the problem is uh, also a bit, um, I mean, complex and far and removed from people uh, and ordinary consumers as well. So it's not, it's not too easy. But I, um, as I said before, I, the SDGs, a uh, very good tool. All the countries in the world signed up to this. Uh, so um, you have something to uh, to uh, slam into the table when people are uh, or politicians are not <laughs> taking this seriously enough. If all over the world, I mean, even in Norway, in, even in Norway, we've signed up to the SDGs, and in many respects, we are we are a developing country when it comes to to some of the SDGs, like on food waste and perhaps also on on on, um, on illicit financial flows, because we have a way to go. So. Um, um, I think the yeah the SDGs as a platform mill is a great it's a great call for change. I'm wondering if Raymond wants to get in on the discussion. He's sitting there on the sideline. Uh, oh, I'm interested in hmm. questions from yeah. the yeah. audience. And I'm wondering. I think it's maybe time to, to open up for questions hmm. from the audience. And I mean, at least you can you can prepare yourself if you have if you have questions. Um, but I feel that we're not really touching on the scale, I mean, the scale of the problem that, that, that Raymond put up there. Uh, with, with, I mean, rising inequality, the erosion of democracy, and um, I'm trying to find a question in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it, it really is like a, a clarion call, to use a, a kind of big word, for us. 
to, to start dismantle this system. So, you know, I guess will you, will you, will the government go with a sense of urgency to to at least get rid of the loopholes that we currently have in our legislation? Mm. No, um, I'm not very into details on which yeah. loopholes we do have, but we we are trying to broaden our tax base with you know ev among every in every budget, and we got a lot of, a lot of criticism when we close loopholes and broaden our tax base. Um, but that's a part, it is a part of uh, a broad uh, agreement on taxation. That's a, these things are gradually happening. Um, so, but I'm not into details on what the Ministry of Finance is actually doing. So, but I, I will look more into that because it's quite, it's something that comes up in the debate quite often. But, um, um, I mean, globally we are, um, you know, uh, Raymond had a, a, a slide on, on on um, the financial flows, or he told about more money actually coming from the poorer countries than the rich countries are investing or, or sending in development assistance. And it, you know, it's, um, it's important to us to, to remember that um, development assistance will only be a very small part of what's going to give uh, sustainable development and long-term development for, for countries in the global south. Um, so um, getting the financial system to be working in favor of sustainable development. It's, uh, it's a very key concern uh, for us uh, in what we do. It's, it's the reason why we engage also in these issues because it's the, the only way to get uh, economic growth over the long term in countries in yeah, Africa and Asia and Latin America is to, uh, to tilt the financial system and, ma and make the playing, playing field even. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's what it takes. Um, and um, um, in our development assistance, we're also trying to target the most poor and vulnerable. Uh, we have uh, all these strategies for uh, for humanitarian assistance for vulnerable states for the Sahel region. So it's, I mean, we are seeing a shift in our development assistance going more and more to the least developed countries and the people at the bottom of this uh, uh, pyramid uh, or the dead deciles, the bottom deciles. That's also that is also in line with the SDGs that you should, uh, you should leave no one behind. So it's also a guiding principle, but that has more to do with aid flows, which are, uh, I mean, the, the relative importance of aid is, uh, is actually diminishing because you have more, we have different players uh, in the game, big countries in, in Asia doing uh, different things. So it's, um, the landscape is changing. I haven't seen any hands. Mariana. Mariana. Okay. I have. <laughs> <You're seen laughs> well, I, we, we need to be willing to think more radically about the task we, are, yeah. task we are taking on, even though not every single country in the world will follow us immediately. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I want to go into details on tax matters mm -hmm. since, I'm, since I'm sitting beside uh, a person who's not working on that currently. But to be, uh, to be broad, uh, we need to think differently when it comes to transfer pricing. We, we, we are not able to solve transfer pricing within the system that we, we are operating right now. Um, we, uh, we have to, to solve the issue of residency because that's what the digital giants and, and the whole internet economy is actually challenging when, when a company doesn't mm. live physically anywhere but only exist up in the cloud. It's very challenging to, to, uh, to tax those companies' rights. So the issue of res residency needs to be solved and we need a whole nother, another thinking about it. Maybe the, uh, the taxation of, of profits 
is not the way to go forward, to fight those companies on taxing their profits. Maybe we need to tax transactions to, to a larger extent than we do today. Those are quite radical new thoughts that we need to be willing to discuss in this country, and we need to, to, to take some of them on to, to, uh, to, be to be able to solve this. On the issue of openness, we can demand openness guarantees from companies that, that want to operate here. That's one, uh, one task. Uh, we, uh, we can decide not to allow uh, anonymous nominee accounts to, to actually demand that the people who want to invest in Norway uh, are open about who they are. Uh, it, it should be uh, an easy, easy task to take on. And then I was mentioning, uh, mentioning the facilitators. Those people are facing no risk at all. And we have a fast-growing industry with smart, highly educated people who are <laughs> devoting themselves, their knowledge, all their creativity uh, to, uh, to facilitate this whole system that we have created, uh, to identify the loopholes, to, uh, to uh, put together this, this uh, extremely complicated structures for corporations, for, for transactions. Uh, and, uh, and even though they are clearly operating on the, uh, on the wrong side of, uh, of our legislation, quite often, those people never go to jail. And to be blunt, we need to put some of these people to jail. <laughs> That's what we need to do. If we, if we introduce personal risk into the mix here, something will happen. I'm quite, quite sure about that. Uh, and one, uh, one very concrete uh, uh, topic that we are discussing in our, uh, Norway right now uh, is legal privilege for lawyers. Mm. Because legal privilege, uh, when, when, when a lawyer enters uh, the room, a cloud of secrecy uh, is present immediately. It's almost impossible mm. for tax authorities, for, for criminal uh, investigators, uh, to go after what is going on when, when a lawyer is, is uh, introduced. So, uh, so, so that's the reason why we see this tremendous growth in, uh, in uh, lawyers' offices also in Norway. But globally, it's exploding. A cloud of secrecy. I, I like that phrase. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, I mean, I have I have two questions and and, and one comment. <laughs> so please. Uh. Well, to the that first question on, on, on punishment. Of course, incentives do matter, uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to leave it to the, the, the justice politicians to take that uh, pick up that mantle. Although it's, I think it's quite interesting to see that. Um, in the US for all the issues that we have there. They are extremely strict when it comes to antitrust and anti-competition uh, regulation. I mean, you go to jail if you are uh, creating a cartel or something. So they are, um, they and you can say a lot about the incarceration system in the US, <laughs> which is a different debate, but it's, it's quite interesting to note. Um, and secondly, um, on, on, on the, I mean, taxes do work with, uh, I mean, we can see that on the streets of Norway, that incentives work. and. And, uh, you know, a, a successful environmental tax uh, is zero because then you've solved the environmental problem that you were supposed to solve. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the idea of an environmental tax. But, um, um, but you, know, I'm, you know, I'm from the Conservative Party. I'm not too fond of taxes, but I really love good tax systems. And we, we do have a very good tax system here in Norway. 
Of course, there's always room for improvements and, and tweaks. Uh, but what we what we are also trying to try to export through the tax for development uh, scheme is is uh, is the, the design of tax systems in a way that incentivizes the right and societally correct behavior or the good good things in society, uh, and that we are we are lucky enough in Norway to have an acceptance of of high taxes, and it's 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 something that I mean uh, has we've uh, have developed across I'd say almost centuries of good management, good financial management. And it's not something that will uh, come very easily around the world, but it's, I mean, getting good tax systems is a very uh, necessary first um, step. Um, yes, and uh, Johan, I can let Raymond perhaps ask a question, but I think we have one, uh, uh, I wouldn't say best friend, but a very good friend in this, and that's Nigeria, actually. Moyona. Mm. Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I totally agree uh, on the comment made that, that taxes can provide uh, good and healthy incentives. Uh, so uh, so that's, uh, that's a good reminder. Uh, and then when it, when it comes to, to penalties and, and the role of the facilitators, uh, we, we've seen quite some examples on how this is not working. Uh, I rem remember, for instance, uh, when we had, uh, had LuxLeaks, uh, it was reveal revealed that that a company like PricewaterhouseCoopers would actually recommend a tax arrangement that had a possibility of 50% of passing a legal test. So it was a 50% chance that if the tax authorities went after that specific arrangements and look, uh, arrangement and looked into it, uh, they would uh, they would uh, uh, deem it illegal, and still they would recommend it. Mm. A 50% chance. And that, that illustrates in, <laughs> uh, in all ways that the risk is too low uh, and the system is not working. Uh, so, so we both need to have functioning penalties. Uh, uh, like I said, we, we need to put some people to jail. Uh, but we also need to in increase the risk of actually being revealed when, when you are, uh, when you are uh, operating like this. So, uh, so uh, it boils down to, to an issue of of the capacities of uh, of our uh, legal investigators, the capacity of our tax authorities, uh, we 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 need to to staff them up. We need to to provide the resources they need to go after uh, these arrangements and these facilitators. Uh, so um, so um, uh, that's the brief answer to a very complicated uh, question. Uh, and then when it when it comes to uh, to the creativity uh, of uh, of um, uh, those who are making these tax arrangements and uh, this um, this uh, flows. Well, uh, I I I used to sit uh, or serve in in the standing committee on financial uh, issues for some years, uh, working on on uh, tax matters and tax legislation. And uh, at some point. I realized that that trying to run after these facilitators, uh, dancing every little loophole, uh, and moving the small letters in our tax legislation is not going to take us anywhere. So, so what we need is uh, is a coherent, simple tax system with very, very clear uh, foundations, uh, and then uh, then. Um, uh, anti-avoidance rules in combination with financial openness so that we know where the money is going, 
what, uh, uh, how much money we are talking about, wh where they end up, uh, and uh, are able to make a legal assessment on, uh, on the vali validity of that transaction. Is it in accordance with what we are trying to achieve uh, with, our, with our tax legislation or not? And if it's not, if it's, if it's illoyal to, your, to, to the purpose of our tax legislation, we are able to, to tax it anyway, even though uh, they uh, try to be creative and, and pass this arrangement within the letter of, of the legislation. So, uh, so that's where I'm, <laughs> I'm currently uh, on, on these issues. Thank you. We we um, we only have a couple of minutes left, so I wanna. I haven't seen any other hands, um, but I want to invite Raymond uh, to answer that question. But maybe also, if you have any advice for these uh, government and, and party representatives, and you know, uh, I, th I I thought the the uh, point about climate and and how you how we can do things individually in different countries was a good one. So, and I know that, that you have, you're very good at this kind of practical advice for countries. So what should developing countries do, but what should also Norway do? Okay, thank you. Uh, and let me respond to, uh, uh, to your question. Um, who's leading this uh, in Africa? Um, the, um, um, the African Union has adopted uh, the recommendations of the Mbeki high-level panel. Um, and so the issue is very solidly on the table. That doesn't mean that many African countries are yet taking the necessary steps to actually uh, curtail illicit financial flows and address the, uh, uh, the shadow financial system. These things take a long time. Let me digress for a moment and talk about what it takes to get a new issue on uh, the political economy agenda. It takes three things. It takes uh, analysis, it takes institutional support, and it takes political clout. Let's take the climate change issue uh, as an example. Analysis uh, has been around for, what, more than 40 years that uh, Global warming and climate change are uh, a reality. Um, institutional support was added to that by Norway and other Nordic uh, countries and by the United Nations that provided the institutional support necessary to address um, uh, the issue. Uh, but then the political clout came from Al Gore who, uh, former vice president of the United States, made a movie, got the Academy Award, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it was his political clout that made a, a huge contribution to getting the issue of climate change uh, thoroughly on the table. And that process took about 40 years. Um, on the issue of illicit financial flows, uh, we compressed that into about 10 years. The analysis uh, began to appear in 2005 and 6 and 7, the analysis of illicit financial uh, uh, flows. Institutional support came from the, uh, initially from Norway, supporting um, um, a coalition of uh, activists in this area, and also from the UN Economic Commission for uh, Africa that provided impetus to this. 
But then the political clout came from Thabo Mbeki. Thabo Mbeki has traveled the continent, uh, putting forward the importance of addressing uh, this issue. Uh, I've been to Washington, New York, uh, here to Oslo, uh, Paris, uh, London, and so forth. It's his political clout that has driven that uh, issue on the table. The two most important people to continuing this pressure in Africa are Thabo Mbeki, and secondly, the recently retired uh, deputy head of UNECA, uh, Abdallah Hamdok. These are the two people in Africa that are most important in driving this uh, issue uh, forward. Um, we've got the issue on the table. Uh, that was accomplished in a 10-year time span. The, the, the task now is to implement steps uh, that can uh, uh, realistically curtail this problem. Uh, we in GFI have been in 24 African countries in the past two years uh, pushing this agenda. It's fair to say that everybody is aware of it. It's also fair to say that not many concrete steps are being taken yet. Nigeria is a bit of an exception, but there's a lot more that needs to be done uh, in a concrete way to address uh, these questions. If I can make one further comment and leave you uh, uh, with a question. Several years ago, uh, two friends of mine made an estimate of the number of people around the world who die uh, from economic deprivation. And their estimate was 18 million people a year die of economic deprivation and causes stemming from economic deprivation. That's about 50,000 people a day that die of economic deprivation. I had that, in, that, that analysis in the back of my mind uh, several years ago when I spoke in uh, Manchester, England. This was a great big auditorium, a union hall, uh, packed to the gills. And after I had uh, talked a woman in the audience uh, in the question and answer session said, um, okay, but if we stop all that money coming out of other countries into our country, won't that hurt our uh, economy? Won't that uh, uh, drive down our stock market, uh, affect our pension plans? And I said, um, I answered uh, and said, perhaps slightly. But then the question is, what percentage of your standard of living is worth someone else's life? I got applause for that line. I never get applause in the middle <laughs> of a line. But I, I came back and shared this experience with uh, uh, our GFI staff. And the reaction was, you can say that to a working class audience in the UK, but you can't say that anywhere else. This is the first audience in which I have asked that question. What percentage of your standard of living, our standard of living, because every one of us are at the top deciles, what percentage of our standard of living is worth someone else's life? I leave you with that to think about. We... We're out of time. Um, 
there was a question, so I'm going to let you answer sort of very, very briefly, uh, just summing up in like half a minute or so. Marianne first, and then uh, Jens. Well, if you're, if you're leaving me now with, with uh, answering the, the final rhetoric uh, question of, of Mr. Baker, yeah. the obvious answer is zero. Yeah. Um, but uh, but my my main message here here is uh, is that we need to uh, to be willing to take some uh, to to discuss some radical new ideas and to take on some actions as Norway to to lead and to provide an example for the world that it's possible to start dismantling this uh, system. It's possible. We just need the political will to do it. Thank you. And the political will is here. <laughs> we are, uh, I mean, it's, it's a key priority in our government manifesto. It's something that we do think about every day. We do take the fights uh, in the UN, uh, for instance, and also in our development assistance. It's a very, um, very, uh, very cross-cutting team uh, of what we do. It's, it's essential to, to, to reach um, a, a sustainable a path of sustainable uh, development, but we need, uh, we need more people talking about this, uh, more, uh, more civil society engagement. Uh, this is a good thing. Raymond also is also a very strong voice uh, internationally, but, uh, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Johan? No? Okay. Thank you for coming. There's uh, uh, some food left there, so do grab some on your way out. Thank you to Marianne, Jens and Raymond uh, for being with us this morning, and to all of you.